Welcome to the Teaching Classroom 21, a podcast by The Ever Learner. I'm James, your host. Join me and my guests every week as we discuss, debate and explore the features of a world-class classroom in the 21st century. Good morning, afternoon or evening, depending on when you're listening to this show. I am Mike, your host for today, and with me we have James Sims. James is a teacher of 17 years, creator of MyP Exam, co-director of The Everlearner, partner to Marta, dad to Georgina and Anna, and a thoroughly nice chap. James, how are you? That's really nice, Mike. Thank you. I, I like the best, the last bit best. Of course, the, the the first stuff, you know, it's nice, but the other stuff's just true and boring. And yeah, the, the last, last bit, bit is. Isn't. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, I appreciate that. Um, so, I told you earlier that I was going to ask my first question, which is one that you asked me on my interview, mm. but I didn't tell you what it was. So, the first question, I'm not sure if I'm quoting this directly from what you said, but it was something along the lines of, "What is your dream?" Mm interesting question I don't, and firstly i don't remember asking it yeah you definitely did because yeah. i was really disappointed with how i answered it really yeah I, well it was it kind i of told you about my... a dream i had and no i didn't but <laughs> <laughs> so in terms of my dream i think it it relates around a notion of a, qu- a quality of opportunity i think for me it feels very important to me and very good to me to be moving and I would argue moving rapidly in a direction towards sincerely and genuinely a range of people having an equality of chance, whether they take that chance is another matter, but an equality of opportunity that is not directly limited by structural assumptions that are around them so it kind of goes to a societal level i suppose so for me i look at the potential we have um as people i look at the potential that we have as a society and then i look for deficits and i think one of the deficits that we have is that we we really structurally hamper people through um a very different experience of education through a structural difference in education through um so for just taking one thing as an example you know there's a big difference between people in terms of which teacher happens to be in your classroom what access you have to really high quality resources who around you uh, sets high expectation who around you sets you good role models who around you believes in you enough so that even when you're having difficult times it will support you and 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 help you to build for the future. So I think my dream is the is an equality of opportunity. I don't believe equality itself is possible um, because I think people will always interpret opportunity differently. And what I believe as success will be different to someone else's idea of success. But what I find it very difficult to accept is that today we have structural inequality and I want to spend the rest of my life working towards structural equality and then therefore giving people the opportunities to take that path if they choose. And in the past, we've talked about the difference between equality and equity. How, how does that fit into that dream? So in my opinion, 
the, I can only say the way I th- think about this. I, I don't know if I'm going to be um, dictionary definition correct on this, but for me, equality means that all people have the same opportunity to do the same things regardless of who they are, where they were born, um, various other factors, socioeconomic factors, gender-related <coughs> factors, and so on, that everybody has the same opportunity to access the highest quality of whatever that thing is, whether, you know, in our, in our context, it's education. Now, I think to an extent we are getting closer to that in certain aspects of our society. So, for example, I think it's very comfortable to me to argue that we have theoretical equality towards um, gender participation in STEM subjects, for example. Let's say, let's say <coughs> engineering. I believe we have theoretical equality today that there's, there's no direct barriers that exist for women that don't exist for men. There are certain psychological barriers, and that obviously is restrictive. Now, where equity comes in is equity deals with the end product. Equity would be finding protocols and policies which mean that by the end of whatever we were implementing, we had something like 50-50 representation, whether it's across gender, whether it's across ethnicity, whether it's across socioeconomic status, these kinds of things. So that is what I see, the difference between equality and equity. And I think they both have relevance at different times. So for me, the main objective is equality because... I'm not someone who would necessarily assume that boys and girls are exactly the same. And, I, you know, I do think there are differences between the experience of life for a biological, biologically male person to a biologically female uh, person. So I don't think equity is necessarily the end goal. Um, but for me, if we have structural inequality, then I cannot accept that in our in our society. And I cannot accept this desire to change it slowly or gradually if that happens for me we should remove the impediments to that immediately and then there'd still be a lag as people readjust to the to the circumstances just take gender in stem subjects what i agree with you there's there is differences biologically there's no getting away from that why is there such a big difference you think in when you when you look at the engineers in, in certain um, in certain fields, let's take the big tech companies mm. of today. There is a big difference between the number of men and women involved in those kind of the STEM subjects. So why why is that? Why does that exist? So I think first of all that if we look at hard factors such as are as many girls educated today in maths, science, technolo- technology as boys? The answer would be yes. There would be equality in the societies that we're talking about in that experience. Are there direct structures which would, and, and possibly even equity-based policies that would encourage uh, girls to enter engineering, for example? Yes, those things exist. So that's very, very positive. But of course what we have is we have a psychological lag mm. and a temporal lag to how those things actually impact. So, for example, if you're if you're to let's let's imagine some kind of study. If we were to take 500 boys in the UK and 500 girls in the UK by the age of I take, take I'll choose my daughter's eldest elder my elder daughter's age 13, and we were to ask them how many of you 
would uh, consider a career in ed in engineering in the future, I would be confident that despite the practical access routes, I would argue that, the, that there would still be a significant majority of boys or a greater proportion of boys, significantly so, than girls that would choose that as an option. And that comes down to notions for me of esteem, of role modelling, of self-recognition. So, first of all, if you if you never ever as a girl in engineering or as a boy in ballet or as a or, or as a boy in midwifery, if you never ever ever see a model that's displayed to you through the numerous channels that you're going to be exposed to as a young pe young person, you're going to internalize those ideas. So a young a young female in our society is still today less likely to be exposed by the suggestion, the visual representation, the role modeling of a woman in engineering. There are exceptions and the image does appear and it's often celebrated when it appears, but it's celebrated because it's the exception, yeah. not because it's the normality. So for me, there's that issue as well. Now, I don't believe, personally, this is my, just my personal opinion, I don't believe that 50-50 equality is the thing to aim for in, in that case. There may well be, I don't know, there may well be some reasons th that some girl, th that, that, that females choose not to go towards that route. Or in our societal context, even when the possibility is open to them, they still m might not choose that route. And there might be all kinds of reasons mm. for that. So for me, exact equality is uh, or ex a 50-50 representation is is not what's to be aimed for. I think what's to be aimed for is an absolute decisiveness towards a structural equality of access. And then I think what we should be doing is that we should be much more, um, much more prepared to challenge dominant narratives in our society. Let me just choose one at random. Let me just choose the Disney narrative. You could choose any. How does that represent young womanhood to women? And I would say tradition, probably recently is slightly better. I, I don't follow Disney greatly, but certainly traditionally, it has not been a strong message of a functional and practical woman who fixes things or creates things or builds things. I'm sure there's examples now that do do that, but the, the model of that, and we've got to be much more prepared to challenge that idea. So as a father, for example, am I going to prevent my daughters watching a Disney film? Probably not. Am I going to encourage them to watch it? Definitely not. Because why would I? Why would I encourage that model? What, I'm just picking on Disney. I mean, yeah. just just as an example, they can take it. They yeah, <laughs> they'll be all right. Um, why would I encourage that? And that's not to say that, let's say, wearing pink is wrong or wearing a dress is wrong. I don't really care. But I don't see why I have to encourage that retention of a traditional image yeah. of femininity. I don't. I reject that. It's a really interesting point about the psychological lag that you mentioned about the, the fact that there may well be, there probably are better structures in place now. Probably are better structures um, in place than there were, let's say, five decades ago. But maybe we haven't quite caught up to those structures yet psychologically. And then you mentioned about the lack of role models, which is probably a, a factor involved in that. So how do we square that circle? How do we get out of the rut that we're in, mm. in terms of, there's better policies in place, but we still have a lack of role models. Is it inevitable that it's going to happen? Or or is there more that we need to do to drive that forward to happen faster? So start noticing, I think, is the first step. Uh, whether, whether you're male or female, whether you're older, I don't think it really matters. And by the way, we, we're talking about this in relation to gender. I mean, there's similar 
conversations to have mm-hmm. in relation to other um, marginalized groups. Yeah. So let's take the, something you and I are both interested in. We're, we're both background as PE teachers, both interested in sport. Why would I find it normal to turn on, let's say, uh, or, or to look through or to turn on a, a very popular um, sports media outlet? Let's take the BBC sports page, for example, or choose any Sunday newspaper you want or choose any um, sports report on any TV channel or whatever. Why is it normal to us that, and we looked at this in a little bit of detail, that that on an average day on the BBC website, there are 20 to 1 representation of male performance to female. Why don't we find that strange? Yeah. For me, it's very odd. <clears throat> like, why is that? And why would so many visitors go to that page and not even notice that? Not even see it? Now, for me, it's, the fir- it, I, 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 it's almost the first thing I notice. So it's examples like that. And then I guess what the media company would say would be, well, that's what sells and we have to provide that. I get it. But you've got to, I think, get a balance between what you profit from and what you promote as a, as a resourceful and responsible, let's say, media outlet. And I think that's where we can do things far better. But that will ultimately come from people saying, why is that? Now, you can come up with a different conclusion to me. I'm sure m- most people would. But we have to ask the question and if we are as a society if we are um what's the right word if we are developed trained indoctrinated uh, uh, conditioned into not questioning things then i find that to be very very concerning because if we can't question that which is so obvious how do we question things that are more subtle and more subtle things do need questioning i would argue how much of the responsibility, let's take the gender debate and stick with that, how much of the responsibility lies with media companies, Hollywood, um, mass entertainment? You, me- you mentioned about Disney. I think there has been a shift fairly recently towards more female leads. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, let's take um, Marvel, for example. Generally quite heavy on the male leads, but more recently have released films with a strong female lead character as a, as a sort of super hero lead character how much is the responsibility of those organizations that have that voice and have the financial backing and resources to promote a different message i think it depends on how that's done i don't know a lot about marvel films if i'm honest but it depends how that is if if there's been um if there's been a conscious decision which is like okay you know we've clearly got like a misogynistic or patriarchal structure here then we need to challenge it and then, and then they tokenistically release the next film, which happens to have a female lead. And I'm not a big respecter of that. If it's a, if it's a more considered long term decision, then I think that's more interesting. I think the other point is that that those companies would argue, well, we have to be commercially sustainable, so therefore we have to follow where the market is. So then that has to lead to a question of, well, why is the market like that? Why why do people see it like that? And then you, you you can almost get round to the idea that we've all been conditioned to what is entertaining, what is sport, what is whatever, is being based around this masculine idea. Look at the sports that are dominant in our society, for example, rugby, football, 
cricket, athletics, and you, you know, you can go on. These sports are dominated by males. Why? Because they were structured by males around the male physical form, around the male body. So, of course, when those sports are later adopted by females, those females are never going to be able to, for example, be as powerful. They're never going to be able to, for example, uh, apply as much force to an opponent or a ball. So, if you take, let's take rugby as an example. Right, who's the response? Let's just let's just go on a thought experiment here. If rugby or choose American football or choose soccer or whatever you're interested, if that sport was dominated not by the physical attributes of power, strength, and endurance, but was dominated by hyper flexibility, hyper endurance, and pain tolerance, who would be the athletic ones? So we've got to we've got to be able to say, well, in our entire structure, our entire Inter- entire reality is structured around a model of patriarchy. That's not to say it holds everybody down, because many females uh, succeed regardless of that, and many males fail regardless of that, depending on how you judge success and failure. But the structures are predominated on a male or patriarchal assumption. So by its nature, that is going to mean for a whole group subgroup of people there are going to be psychological and at worst structural limitations on how they access things and that i think the first trick to that is just to know it yeah is not to do anything with it but just to recognize it in your own mind now i don't think it makes me any of a less of a man that i see the world that way i don't think it emasculates me in fact i think it makes me somehow more uh, more of an adult man because mm. i'm aware of it and it's not like I'm perfect, and some people nearby, I'm sure, would agree with this. I can probably still be as chauvinistic, uh, assumptive as the next person, but I'm aware of it, and I try to challenge myself over it. And I think that is something that I would encourage more people to do, because if you're aware of it, then you can begin to find the reality within within the reality. And, and I want to repeat again, I am not arguing that men and women are the same. That is not absolutely not my view. That I think there are differences and those differences should be celebrated and should be at the heart of our society, heart of our educational system. Like I can't imagine, let's take an SLT, I can't imagine an SLT made up of all men or all women. I think it would be really difficult. I'm sure it's happened, but I really yeah. wouldn't want to be on that team. No. You need a balance of both. Men and women, whether it's biologically or whether it's socioculturally, develop different ways of approaching things. We all know rough, you know, we can all feel what those things are. So we need that balance. But I think recognizing that patriarchy is predominant in our structure, I think is very helpful to be able to then start to think about um, change, reform, equality, these sorts of ideas. On the, on that point, the kind of narrative of the far left, if you like, the, the extreme left is is one of, I, I guess, what you defined earlier as equity for men, you know, yeah. for males and females, that they are equal, that the, the gender debate is a social construct, or gender itself is a social construct, and that there is no biological basis for a difference, and that um it's it's completely social is that too far it's hard to say i mean that that thinking comes out of the 1960s 70s french philosophy especially of folk care and i think there's real things to be celebrated in that in the sense that people can be anything people are genuinely free you know you can be you can be born in a 
I don't know, I'll, I'll look at my own family, a, a Midlands uh, uh, struggling old ex-mining community and you can become something completely different because you can invent your 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 own persona and, and your own personification. I think that's really to be celebrated. But one of the potential dangers of it is that we start to forget that differences between people are good. Yeah. And so... If if we have a tendency for uh, young females in our society, for example, to be really good at expressing sentiment, ideas, feelings, to be much more communicative, that's a good thing, and we shouldn't be concerned about that. Now, on the other side, could we could we take that model and encourage that kind of behaviour more in young boys who sometimes struggle with those sort of things? Of course, but we have to look at a reality that there might be some differences that are causing these things. I accept that a lot of those differences would be social cultural, not biological, but of course those social cultural differences are going to change very progressively by definition. Um, so for me, if I look at something like, um, let's look at uh, work, um, let's look at um, work conditions and parenthood and the biology of maternity and paternity and these sorts of things. For me, there is a complete normality. And, and I'm really sorry if I offend, so I really don't want to offend anyone. But for me, there is a complete... If we accept that the average female in Britain biologically gives birth, I think it's to 1.4 children or 1.6 children or something like that. For me, what that would suggest then is it's completely normal that across a working career the average female is going to have fewer years in the work environment than the average male because that process of maternity has a physical implication to it. So I don't see why that is something that we have to be concerned about. And reassuringly, if we look at um, pay and conditions up to about the age of 35, between men and women, equality is really, really good these days. It's not so good beyond that because the changes have not impacted enough on those that are a little bit older mm. so that's really good and, and then of course we need to build policies and resources and really supportive mechanisms around both maternity and paternity and I think we're beginning to do that better and are we doing it perfectly now probably not but presumably we're gonna you know continually refine that model but we shouldn't be shocked that you know women women play a parental role at some point in their career because they physically and biologically give birth to human young so for me that is a natural state and it must be difficult imagine if you're well i've never been a female so i can't but imagine if you're i don't know you're 28 you're 29 you're 35 you're 40 and you're having a first baby and you've got a you've got a good job and your and your work's like you've got to get back we need you you've got and it must be a real pressure for people like yeah. I, I, you know what what about the woman who wants to be a mother are they accepted as a just just a mother today yeah and i think it's a crucial role mm. you know i see in my own with our own children the the value of children spending time with their parents is very very high and i'm not arguing it should be the mother i'm arguing in an ideal world it would be both parents as much as possible but I do think there's some kind of normality at least around the birthing cycle that the mother is not working for the let's call it weeks or months I don't know what number to put on it so for me if we get confused and lose that idea I think that would be potentially detrimental one of the things I think people will pick up from when you talk in this this podcast and wider on YouTube etc is that you 
you clearly think about or challenge the dominant narrative on a range of subjects where does that come from mm. i'm not totally sure um it's probably started when i was a teenager and it was not coherent at that point i mean i was an idiot you know like <laughs> i talked a lot of garbage when i was a teenager um I had a feeling something wasn't right or something wasn't balanced. I don't know how to word it. It was just a general it was just a general feeling that somehow this isn't how it's meant to be or it doesn't or it isn't how it has to be. And I saw and don't get me wrong, I, I followed a lot of the narratives, you know, uh sport, you know, at that at that age, sport, uh getting interested in girls, going to the park. It was you know, I was pretty average in that sense, I think. Um but as I've developed into adulthood I've kind of become more and more inclined to not just question everything, but almost have rejection as the default position. And then, so if something's presented to me, generally speaking, I don't mean this in a cynical sense, but generally speaking, the first thing I'll do is I'll reject it, and then I'll look for evidence to support that I'm wrong to reject it. So that doesn't matter whether that's a news story, it doesn't matter whether we're working with our developers and they say it's fixed. So I assume it would be wrong and then look for evidence that I'm I reject it and then I look for evidence that I'm wrong to reject it yeah. so I find that a quite a functional thing exactly where it comes from I don't know but what I let me be careful how I say this when I when I speak about these things with people you're an exception because I think you're you're quite a critical thinker but um, there's very often in my life where I try to elevate what's called that's let's call it small talk into medium or big <laughs> talk and people just don't want it yeah. so um people often i find are very happy with the with the, a good example would be at the school gates you know they're talking about the weather and that's great i have no problem talking about the weather but for me i, I kind of have that inclination to want to go a little bit further in, in the conversation so i have to choose those conversations a little bit a little bit wisely but in terms of say, do you ever worry about initiating that conversation with yeah. somebody who maybe has has started a small talk conversation and you try and move it on to something a bit deeper mm. never worry about how it's going to be received yeah i i either i have two settings i either just go throw myself into <laughs> it or i just fairly often i will this this could come across as really unfriendly and i i if if it does then maybe i i apologize in advance but there's lots of times where i don't want to get into conversation in truth because um for, for me the interesting things lie in the fascinating aspects of whatever it happens to be and i don't want to play around with the with the, with the bits that have kind of already been the touched obvious. upon the obvious yeah. now i i realize that makes me sort of some kind of social pariah and sort of like an oddball <laughs> and i guess i have to sort of live with that and accept that but um for me i i enjoy getting into the more um uh, evaluative or, or more critical aspects of a conversation so sometimes that can sometimes that can push people away from me I don't mean people who are close to me but you know sometimes that can make sometimes people a little uh, less keen to to speak and one of the things I'm enjoy, one of the things I enjoy more these days I mean I had a really good example we went to uh, Barcelona with my brother I don't spend much time with as an adult really since we were kids I, we've spent very little time together really and we went for a week together and we just did a lot of walking together all over the city and we didn't talk that much at all we were just together we were just going just having experiences together and i enjoy that um but but yeah i find the things i was kind of intrigued by as a teenager much less intriguing now yeah. 
and or as, as a 20 year old much less intriguing now and i'm much more interested in getting into the detail yeah. of things um but yeah it can be it can be awkward so i guess that the detail the critique the challenge of the dominant narrative is where it kind of started with my p exam with what you did on youtube mm. initially putting your lessons on youtube for free uh, and and to where we are today <clears throat> although yeah you, you've said on a number of occasions that the the development of it was kind of accidental but i assume underneath that there was this sort of drive this knowledge that or, or this feeling that what we currently consider to be a traditional classroom is it, i like what you said earlier is it doesn't have to be that way mm. whether or not it's right or wrong is almost irrelevant but it doesn't have to be like that. we shouldn't assume that it's right just because that's the way it is Would that be a fair assumption I, I had the same feeling when I started as a teacher. I don't know if I could give you the exact words to describe it, but basically as soon as I was in the classroom, and it, by the way, it took nearly 10 years for this to come out, but I knew something wasn't right almost immediately. What, like, what gave it away? Good kids weren't doing that well. Yeah. And I, well, I, let me rephrase that. I think I've gone into teacher mode there. I've gone into like the <laughs> staff room mode there a little bit. Students who clearly had a capacity to, to to learn as you know as human beings can would come out with really kind of average performances um and that ho happened over an extended period of time now you can put that down to the student you can put that down to motivation you can put that down to course examples blah 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 but for me it's a model of like having extreme accountability why would i worry about the exam board why would I worry about whether the kid's motivated or not? I can't, it's not in my control. So I only ever focus on the things that are completely accountable to me and I'm in control of. So so for me, I started in time to look at the type of structures that I was allowing learners to utilize um, in classrooms that I set up. And I remember just before I kind of transitioned out of the traditional classroom, the wet, the solution I'd found was just to keep working harder. I got quite good at explaining things to people, and I just thought if I just do more and more and more and more of that, that's going to help people to learn more. But it, it and it helped a bit, but it was not a solution to what I found was kind of again getting surprising results, getting disappointing outcomes. Now someone would say to me, "Well, it's normal," but I but I returned back. Well, then the structure isn't good enough. Yeah. <clears throat> so for me, then that that's kind of where, um, that's kind of where it it came from, it, yeah. and it didn't find a home until about five six years ago. Yeah, I think it's an important point to drive home. Is I'm really conscious of this that we don't blame the teachers or the students as individuals. Hmm. We, we can hold people accountable, but what we're what we're getting at is the structural aspect. Yeah, and and the, you you mentioned the exam board, the student, the teacher, the parents, the school, the leadership, whatever. And I think people have a tendency to pick out one of those things as the scapegoat, as mm. the the thing that's at fault. But um, it, I think we have to look at that as a network of the, all of those things yeah. add up to build the culture, to build the system. Um, yeah, what was it like? What was the moment like, if you remember it, when you decided, I, I need to move out of this role as being a teacher and do something about this problem that I perceive? So that that happened pretty quickly. As soon as I started recording videos, that happened almost straight away. So I, I initially recorded some shocking videos. Actually, they were awful on an iPad, no microphone, terrible quality. But I recorded some videos for students who were preparing for a, an A-level reset exam. And, um, and pretty quickly after that, 
students would go from sort of being happy with you know having James as the teacher in the classroom to saying James would you mind recording that because I'd like to go over that tonight and and is it okay in lessons that we just do more stuff we do more practice and I ask you questions about it so that happened quite quickly that the students cottoned on that James is teaching you know I I described earlier that I was pretty good at explaining things to students at that point one pace fits all the students cottoned on quite quickly that they could get that same explanation but they didn't have to sit in a classroom for half an hour listening to me working and they realized that they could get it you know a yeah. more on-demand fashion and it's it's not that surprising or maybe it's with hindsight it's easy but it's not that surprising effectively you you become a talking animated textbook you know the the teaching element the tutorial is the same information that you would receive on a yeah. textbook or, or so it's not that shocking that students like to be able to access that wherever they wherever yeah. they are at whatever time and be able to in a textbook you turn back the page in a video you rewind you know it's yeah um, and and, it, and, it, and it's really if it, if you if you go back before the PowerPoint days, how were teachers expressing ideas to students in a presentational format? Well, they were writing it on a blackboard or on a whiteboard, yeah. probably on a blackboard back then. Yeah. And then we got the advent of this kind of this magical PowerPoint thing, which allowed us to prepare all of our explanations in advance. And then what I found in teaching, and I did this a lot, was I found that I would I would use PowerPoints, for example, and I'd use them as something that I would almost stand near, and read out well that didn't work yeah. and if and if there are colleagues out there who are using powerpoint for that in that mode modality i would strongly encourage you to reflect on that what did we lose when that when that when that transition came in when powerpoint or, mm. or equivalents became the norm what did, what did we i remember when I, mean, I don't really remember teachers teaching on blackboards i think the blackboards had pretty much gone mm. but i remember, i do remember in early um, in, in kind of primary school having teachers doing a lot of explaining from the board and they were writing and drawing on the board um, and then I and then I remember in secondary school especially having lots of PowerPoint things mm. what did we lose in that transition if anything so I think we lost um, a notion of spontaneity from the teacher I think that the PowerPoint model is much less spontaneous than and that's not to say PowerPoint can't be used well of course it can um, but in the PowerPoint model, we we I think we lose spontaneity. I think we lose personalization. We lose things like hand drawing. And importantly, l- let's get this point across really, really clearly. If we put a PowerPoint slide up and that same information is drawn onto a whiteboard by hand and the PowerPoint slide incorporates, let's say, two images and four bullet points, uh, maybe it's a diagram of a model or something like that, and on the and on the whiteboard, the teacher or blackboard, the teacher literally draws that model in. Well, of course, by flashing the image in on a PowerPoint slide, you are making gigantic assumptions about the the capacity of all of the students at once to process that information and into and to interpret what that diagram represents. Whereas when it's hand drawn, the teacher is literally here's the first line here's the circle that goes there here's the connecting bit here's the arrow and i'm explaining it to you meanwhile so it's a much more intuitive and developmental way for young for any learner to discover something new from some kind of lecture or transmission that the teacher constructs it from a blank blackboard whiteboard digital blackboard whatever than something which is already pre-constructed on a powerpoint slide and i think ultimately there's two issues with something like powerpointing um 
the second one is shared with from the front teaching one is that you have those assumptions and you have those prefabricated learning structures they're literally prefab here's slide one here's slide two here's slide three the second and I know someone say to you, you can get better consistency across teachers okay I get that but the other one is it's one pace fits all you know whether it's PowerPoint or from the front of a classroom on a whiteboard or a blackboard you're literally saying to the students we are all going to learn this thing now at the same time from one single transmission of information now my point would be today and I, I, I'm going to say it slightly provocatively is that in the world we have it as it is today that isn't good enough and I would argue that we have much 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 better ways of transmitting that information today than that one and I've only ever heard one argument that I would even consider as a possible counter argument to that and so if someone says to me well it's the only way we can do it to sit in the classroom and the teacher is the expert and so, well we know we can get a the greatest expert to all those students we know that we can vary the rhythm by which students take that learning the only argument I've ever sort of really recognized as countering it I mean I guess there's practical ones like room design cost these kind of things but the only one I've ever heard which I thought hmm, that's actually an interesting thought is the idea that at some point in the future we won't need to go through the process of learning it yeah so assuming we have to as human beings go through the process of somehow transmitting one person's knowledge into the minds of many which if we connect to some hard device in the future then I accept we might not need this model but assuming that isn't here yet or that isn't going to happen tomorrow we have to find a model which is efficient at getting information from experts two larger groups of people at an individualized rhythm and I'm afraid to say that the dominant classroom one pace fits all model with some differentiation bolted on is deeply inefficient at that process yeah <clears throat> I would agree it's an interesting point about what the future holds mm. in terms of um, outside of education but how you know societal how do we learn in the future I mean who knows what that's going to hold yeah I think the only thing that's certain is that's still quite a long way off before yeah. we fundamentally change the way we download information to our brain. Mm. So we've, and if we want that future, and some people would argue that's the only future that is possible for the human race to survive, for us to some, somehow merge with the machines. Mm. Um, if we want that future, and that let's take that assumption that, that has to be our future, then we have to get there. We have to learn, and we have to learn, <laughs> learn a lot in order to do it. So we should probably not. Um, we should probably not sit back and wait for that to happen so that we don't have to figure out a way of learning better yeah um let's go into the future then what does let, let's assume this whole thing works let's assume we we manage to convince enough teachers that this is a better model and we start to see a shift towards lots of people using this model lots of students learning better um the ever learner or an equivalent whether it's us or somebody else has a model which is um, supporting really great learning in that in that kind of blended learning framework what next for james mm, i don't know i i find it hard to i find it hard to think past um the working phase of my life i like working um i want to work um sometimes i work too much fairly often i some, I, i've said it to you on many occasions might there have been numerous occasions in recent weeks where i've got to the Wednesday the Thursday of the week and I'm 60 hours in and it's like oh god <laughs> why it seems like such a good idea to do that 14 hour stint on the Mondays so, oh, yeah. so wow I've worked really hard today and then by Thursday I'm kind of struggling but I do I do enjoy working so 
I don't know. Let me let me jump forward. Let Let's assume somehow that in five years' time, m- maybe my day to day responsibilities are different within this organization, within this business, for example. If that was the case, I think what I'd really value is an opportunity to stimulate. I was going to say creativity. That, that that's probably the wrong word. To stimulate the process of design and the improvement of things that can be improved. Um, I'm not a great protocol person. Uh, I'm a good ideas person. I'm a good I'm a good kick things off kind of guy. You know, and there's lots of examples of that in recent years. My my tendency to follow through and to complete things is not as high. So I'd like to be involved in some kind of process where. We look at problems and we try to find a practical and realistic resolution uh, to that problem. Now, in my mind, I tend to think about that in the educational um, system, but it doesn't always have to be that way, um, I, su- I suppose. The other thing I deeply love to do is I'd like to get back um, and do some classroom-based teaching. I don't want any responsibility. If there's a potential employer out there <laughs> who's thinking about uh, employing this uh, washed-up business owner, then I'm not looking for any kind of responsibility. I want—I I almost don't want to be paid. I, I'd like to—I'd like to go in a classroom and experience this model because it's a slight frustration to me that as so many more people, are, you know, our pioneers are good examples. There's so many more people are using this model of education, this model of a classroom. The one person who's doing it the least is—is is I'm not saying it's literally my. I'm sure this idea has been had before. I don't think it's done to me, but nobody told me it, so I don't know where who else had it, but, and. So for me, I'd like to get back into the classroom and, and to work with young people again. I miss that very, very deeply. So I'd like a situation where maybe, I don't know, in a dream situation, maybe I'm contributing at the upper echelons of a business in terms of a project design, that kind of thing. Uh, and I spend a couple of days a week doing some doing some teaching in a classroom in, in a comp- let's call it the bog standard school. Uh, and making a massive difference to the students who happen to occupy the same space as me, I'd, I, I would dearly love to do that. That'd be a nice way to spend your day. Yeah, I would. I would love it. Um, and some t- on different days, I can kind of think, you know, in the future, if we, you know, if we, if we've been successful, you know, I'm going to travel this place and do that. The the only other thing that kind of springs to mind really is that I, I feel very much like I I owe it to my uh, partner to uh, to get her back home. She spent the last. Uh, 16 years living in the UK she's had her children in the UK she's raised her family in the UK she's been absolutely committed uh, to to me and my kind of crazy endeavours and there's part of me would like to repay that by being able to spend more time in her uh, in her hometown and be able to sort of assimilate the culture and improve in the language I would really consider that to be a rich experience and I'd like to do that that's a nice thing to aim for yeah yeah I hope so I mean Everything, everything has its yin and yang, right? I mean, uh, that if if we moved to Catalonia, for example, we'd probably move at the exact time that parents were kind of becoming more fragile and brittle and those kind of things. It would probably, you know, there'd be challenges. Let's be let's be honest. This is not some golden horizon that might happen. It's probably a very challenging and practical thing to do. Um, being a foreigner and being, you know, and assimilating a language is not always a great opportunity. Sometimes you screw up you know sometimes you mishear the doctor sometimes you pick up the wrong prescription sometimes you get things wrong so it's not like everything would be perfect but i i i i would like to i'd like to succeed as a genuine foreigner um it's it's an experience that i think far too 
few people in the UK value. Many people travel, visit, do tourist stuff, but I think very, 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 very few people experience being a genuine foreigner. Some people do, but I think that word broaden the experiences of many, many people in this country, and um, I would encourage more people to do that. I'm very lucky because I happen to have a partner who's from Catalonia in northern Spain, and I've been... I've been a foreigner for hundreds and hundreds of days, hundreds of hours, hundreds of dinners, hundreds of cafe mm-hmm. meetings, hundreds of everything. And I, I, but I feel I've learned a lot in that process, and I think it's something that more people would benefit from. Great. Uh, we're coming up to time. Mm-hmm. I'd like to finish with just opening up the the floor, really, for what would you, if somebody's managed to sit through this and listen <laughs> right to the end. Well done. What, what, yeah, well done for a start. But what would you say to that person? Let's let's assume that person is somebody who has been teetering on the edge and following a little bit of our work and is kind of interested in what we're doing. Um, let's assume they're a teacher. They probably are. Um, what, would, what would you say to that person? Um, it's not your fault. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'd say do what you feel is in your heart, really. And if you don't have the support around you for in the place that you work, for what you believe is right, then find something different. Um, be brave. The, the Actually, braver is a funny point. That Sometimes the brave, in my opinion, the bravest thing that anyone can do is keep doing the stuff you're already doing. Just keep doing the same thing because that is an enormous risk. You know, I think I, I would remind people of that. In terms of um, persuading people into, um, to to move into our classroom model, I don't think I would. I don't think I would try. Just get. I'd just say to them, give them, give us a call, chat to us about it, come and talk to us about it. Um, we 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 have to sell things because we're a, a commercial organisation. But the the thing we want to sell more than anything else is an idea. So I'd say you know chat to us about it and 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 see what see what you think and i tell you something else if there is someone out there who's really teetering on the edge come on to the podcast with us as well and actually let's discuss that why would that be what are the barriers what are the impediments what are the limitations and we will literally look at how we can uh remove those things and a, and a word of warning would be the other one because th- this is i think something that um many teachers will find as this develops uh, this becomes more frequent and more typical once you start down the path the path keeps going so once you start down the path of self-paced learning blended learning once you start down the path of not powerpointing once you start down the path of not having entirely teacher controlled learning episodes the chances of turning back are slim very very slim so go into that in a considered and deliberate and strategic way, knowing that the path is long, it's meandering at times, and that you're very, very, very unlikely to, to turn back. So maybe them being reticent is sensible. Um, it, it depends if that reticence turns into procrastination. If that is procrastination, just get on with it. Yeah. <laughs> just just do it. So yeah, I think, I think that would be my very long-winded advice. Great. It's been a pleasure, as always. Yeah, it's fun. I enjoyed yeah, it. We have it to, went really we, fast. We, it did, yeah. We, I mean, we could talk all day about all kinds of nonsense, but um, mm. we have a broadcast to do in half an hour. It's a five broadcast day today. Five for you. Five today, yeah. Five broadcasts, quite something. Yeah. Cool. That's another question that I, I, I would ask. What, what's the what's the deal of all the broadcasting? You know, do you, Why is it important that you broadcast yourself to people? Hmm. I don't know how to answer that. Um I don't know, do you mean if that I do or one or, or anyone does? Um, I guess both. But from you, from your perspective, we we we're doing a lot more than yeah. than we've done in the past. Why is that? Why are we doing that? Why is that important to other people? 
so for me it's about elevating the conversation yeah so it's a bit like that thing i said earlier that i find awkward sometimes in social situations i'm not very good at the small talk i find what happens a great deal in education establishments is the small talk yeah we just bat around the same ideas over and over and over again and we never sort of get our chins up and look at the, or get our nose and mouths into the clean air which which exists above that um and there's plenty of ideas and there's plenty of possibilities out there so for me it's about elevating um that conversation but i must say as well mike i mean with regard to broadcasting is it's gonna it could come across either really positively or really negatively this i i, I don't, i'm not doing this for anybody else you know i mean i want people to adopt it and i want i want people to think about it seriously but i i'm doing it based because i want to do it yeah and for me that gives me a lot of freedom because then i i'm prepared to talk about the things that matter to me the, the, the persons i'm i will listen to everybody's feedback but the person whose opinion matters the most to me is is my own and the feeling that i have around whether it's been worthwhile or not so if i was to listen back to this podcast and i was like, oh james you know you said that thing earlier on i'd be really you know, if if I think I, if I thought I'd said something wrong, I'd be really harsh on myself about that. But if it doesn't get many listens because the stuff I've talked about is not the most important thing for everyone else, I don't really care. So for for me, it's about being kind of genuine and authentic and um, putting and being brave enough to put uh, your views uh, your views out there. And and of course now there's a comfort in broadcasting. I mean, everybody's seen my teaching. Everyone knows the strengths and weaknesses of my teaching. Everyone knows my handwriting's rubbish. Everyone knows those things. So there's nothing to be embarrassed about yeah. for me. So for me, there's a normality to having a conversation. And why would we have like? Let's imagine you and I had, you and I had this conversation, Mike, and it was in our office, and no one got to hear that conversation. I think that would be a loss for everyone potentially not that's not an egocentric or an egotistical point i'm just saying that these conversations on demand and available to anybody can be really um can be really resourceful so i think it's you know i think i think that that would be and i'm a bit of a narcissist <laughs> so yeah there's that too yeah great thanks very much so yeah. on that note um listen to the podcast obviously you just did so mm. that's pointless advice uh subscribe to youtube do all those things join the conversation uh, like you said that it's an important point to elevate that conversation even if it's just you on your own with your headphones on elevating the conversation in your own mind yeah. that's probably the first and most important place to start so uh, yeah come and join us get in touch love to hear from you thanks a lot thanks mike appreciate it Pleasure.